Good afternoon again, New Zealand. Tēnā koutou i tēnei ahihai Aotearoa. This is the panel. I'm Tim Watkin filling in for Wallace today. And on the panel with me are Anadina Nelson and Stephen Jacoby in Napier. Hello again, guys. Kia ora. Kia ora. Kia ora. Um, Waitangi Eve, it is the day before. Um, what are you guys uh, looking out for this Waitangi day? Well, I'd be hoping for a uh, a very fulsome expression on the part of the government that it will, in fact, honour the treaty and take steps to advance, uh, you know, Maori um, uh, aspirations along with the aspirations of everybody else. And, uh, you know, judging by some of the uh, um, comments already, I think we may be heading in that direction. I hope so. Anna? Yeah, well, I've been um, just watching the live stream uh, this afternoon and saw a blistering speech from Hone Harawera. And, um, you know, it's it's um, it's a beautiful day by the look of things there. And I'm so grateful that there's so many fantastic social media streams that you can just plug in and, and watch um, yeah, no, as it's really happening. <laughs> it's been all go. And you're right. There's been some heat there today. And it's not just because of the sun. Um, the government parties have all spoken this afternoon and it has got, to use Christopher Luxon's word, boisterous at times. Um, so to check on in events, we're going to be joined by um, our reporter there, Paul Kiri Paiwai. Kia ora. Kia ora. Hey, look, um, before we get to the government side, um, Anna made a good point. Hone Harawera there, Annex Sykes, there was some strong widow or challenges laid down today to those government speakers. Um, strong words. What kind of things were said? Well, Hone Harawera especially had uh, a lot of strong words that I, I might not repeat. And once he spoke, the sort of formal porphyry, if you could say, sort of ended there. And then we had a few uh, protesters come on. They were holding signs, uh, placards that read Toitu Te Tiriti. And one of their members, Eru Kapakingi, even um, got up and gave a short speech just before the Prime Minister um, spoke. So it, it was boisterous, I would definitely call it that. <laughs> and, and from the government, how did they respond to this uh, to the challenges they got um, well I think first um, Winston Peters he really leaned into some of the heckling he was getting from the crowd and get yourself really... an education yes yes he to- he totally bit back at them and David Seymour did um, to a certain extent as well but not, I wouldn't say as much as Winston who uh, left shortly after his speech there to um, attend to some of his hui that he has going on. And as David Seymour was speaking, um, Song broke out to, to uh, try and cut him off? Yes, that's true. And that also happened earlier in the day to um, ACT MP Nicole McKee. And something you see quite a lot, of, well, every now and then on Marae where mm. um, if the crowd doesn't, or if the um, hokanga doesn't like the speech that's being said, they might try to begin a song to sort of wrap the proceedings up. And David Seymour, even though the crowd was singing, he continued his speech, um, although I don't think the crowd were listening after that point. No. And um, just finally, Christopher Luxon spoke as well, but he, he got more of a hearing. Yes, so it, it was Christopher Luxon's in, a bit of an impromptu. So the Ngāpuhi, former chairwoman uh, of Ngāpuhi, Mere Mangu, um, went over to him and she led him onto the maho of the marae and he spoke from there, which was a bit of a bit of a change of plan, but uh, there wasn't as much, or well, there wasn't any jeering really from the crowd and there was a little bit less interest as people started to, to filter away and head to catch their buses. Interesting. Pokiri, thank you very much. Um, really appreciate your report from there. That is um, Pokiri Paiwai, live from Waitangi. Um, and look, 
these is the time of the year when lots of politics and history gets thrown around, and we can't spend all afternoon on the Marae soaking up this debate. But we did want to give you a few things to think about on our national day. So we're joined now by Paul Moon, who's a professor of history at the Auckland University of Technology. Kia ora, Paul. Kia ora, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, what a, in, the, in a short period of time, what are three things worth knowing about the treaty that maybe aren't as well known or could, you know, might just give people something to think about this Waitangi Eve? Well, I, I suppose some sort of context first. Um, sure. A lot of, a lot of the, the corrections to understandings about the treaty take a long time to get into the bloodstream. So, mm. um, for example, the fact that the chiefs never ceded sovereignty, this has been known about among many hapu since the time of the signing. Not one chief said, we're relinquishing our sovereignty over our people. That never happened. But the British never wanted it either. And this has been known for at least a quarter of a century. But you still hear disputes about, well, you know, the British wanted to conquer Maori and so on. No, in 1840, the British wanted sovereignty over their own subjects. One official said, we want sovereignty over Anglo-Saxons living in New Zealand. And that was it. Far what happened later, of course, to, is something else. To describe, but that isn't the point that, that, that this is disputed. I mean, I mean... Hobson's motivations, and I think you make a point in a column that you wrote at the weekend, which was um, really useful. You said that um, to pres- it's wrong to presume that everybody involved in the treaty signing had an identical view on its meaning. And isn't the point, Correct. I guess, that perhaps some people did want one thing and one people wanted something else, but, you know, there are many different people with very, very many different views there. There's bound to be, but one thing we can be certain of is that the British never wanted to govern, in 1840, never wanted to govern Māori. That's clear. That's clear from British policy. There's not one document that says anything to the contrary leading up to 1840 from any government department or official in Britain. And it's not out of altruism, it's just out of pragmatism. They said, (laughs) look, it's it's far too too costly to govern this very highly organised, well-armed Indigenous population. We want to extend our jurisdiction. It's a headache we've had for about 20 or 30 years now. We've got lawless Britons living in New Zealand. We need to do something about it. We need the consent of the Indigenous population to do this. And British were clear on that. Uh, Lord Normanby, when the instructions that he gave to to Hobson coming out, um, it was kind of back and forth, wasn't it? He said colonisation would be good for New Zealand, but it would be fraught with calamity. But on the other hand, Crown had to recognise that Māori, had already recognised that Māori had title to the land, and so they didn't want to get caught up in something. I mean, there was a lot of back and forth, wasn't there? There was a lot of wrestling going on with just what to do. Very much so, and it's probably no surprise it was written by a lawyer. Um, (laughs) you, You get... You get a bob each way. Um, one of the, the key things, of course, in that set of instructions is that the British government officially recognised Maori sovereignty. They said it's a fragmented form of yep. sovereignty, split over different tribes, but nonetheless they recognised it and they had to because these agreements, these treaties, were necessarily between sovereign states. They weren't acts of conquest. They were one sovereign state dealing with another. And so the British had to formally recognise Maori sovereignty as a precursor to signing this treaty. Right, as the nature of being a treaty. It has to be between two two parties, yeah. Um, That's right. Um, Paul, can I bring in the other panellists? Stephen, do you have um, thoughts on what we understand and any other questions for Paul? Well, I think a lot of this discussion revolves around the differing interpretations of Kawanatanga and Tinorangatiratanga. And, Paul, I was really interested in your uh, piece in the Herald, which that was excellent, um, clarifying some of these things. And this idea uh, that you just talked about, that the British motives in signing the treaty, we're really trying to govern um, effectively Pākehā, what, what later became Pākehā New Zealanders. 
Um, I heard Margaret Mutu this morning also say that, well, you know, Kawanatanga, and excuse me if I'm paraphrasing this, Kawanatanga really replies only to Pākehā, not to everybody. That's Tinoranga Tiratanga. Um, uh, and it, this seems to be a similar sort of um, um, argument. I, I, can you unpack that a little bit more for us? Yes, well, one of the problems with Kawanatanga, of course, is that most of the chiefs didn't understand the term. Mm. It's, it's basically derived from the English word governor, kawana. Um, so they would have been scratching their heads in a lot of cases, and we've got to put ourselves in the position of those signatories at the time. Um, real uncertainty about Article 1, if you're reading the Te Reo version, what is kawanatanga? What's a governor? What's a governor? Kawana, it's a cyclical explanation. But you get to Article 2. And the chiefs have been guaranteed their chieftainship, which amounted to a form of sovereignty. Chiefs had sovereignty over their hapu. So from, from the trail point of view, that the, the chiefs thought this was a good deal. The British are going to, you know, this small immigrant group are going to look after themselves, govern themselves now, will be left unaffected. Now, this, this and, is and, and the trade with Australia that was so crucial, they'd actually have some laws around the trade that was going on. Yes, and, and things like shipping and how, for example, Māori get treated on ships, which mm. is a real problem for decades. Um, but, of course, the other side of it, too, is that this went on after 1840. In fact, as late as 1843, you've got Lord Stanley, the colonial secretary in London, saying, apart from serious crimes like murder, the jurisdiction of Britain is not going to extend into Māori communities. And he put this in writing in 1843. So they're very much the British government in the early 40s thought there would be two separate systems, this vast indigenous system, which we don't really understand, let them do their, their thing. But we will definitely have full jurisdiction over British subjects in the country. Anna? Yeah, I'm interested to know, Paul, just personally, um, with from a historian perspective, it seems like this whole issue has been um, raked through. It's been quite clear. We've had decades and decades of understanding. Um, how how do you feel about this debate happening now at this time, um, thanks to David Seymour and the ACT Party? Um, well, there's a couple of points about that. That's, I suppose, a critical question. Um, firstly, the, the treaty has become something much bigger than what it originally was, and it's almost got to the point now, and this applies across the political spectrum, where someone has a particular ideological stance, and they give authority to that stance by saying, well, my interpretation of the treaty is, and it supports this. And, and you see this, particularly at election time, particularly at Waitangi Day, where people of various political hues stand up and say, well, the treaty says this, and some says, well, the treaty says this. And they selectively pick at interpretations to support their views. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is that you end up with a lot more talk, a lot more research, a lot more publications on the topic, but even less understanding, arguably, than there was, say, a century and a half mm. ago. It's a paradox. Thank you, Paul. Um, I just wanted to, before we move on from this, um, Stephen Rawadi Waititi said on the morning report this morning that part of Tino Rangatiratanga mm as he saw it, included Māori negotiating their own trade deals. Um, mm. You're a trade expert. I'm really mm. interested to see how you could imagine that working. Well, I think um, what we have to realise, of course, is that um, just as the treaty itself uh, in its interpretation and understanding has evolved over time, 
um, so is our trade policy practice continuing to evolve. I mean, once upon a time, it was the government only that negotiated with another government, but now it's a little different. We have all sorts of consultative arrangements. Uh, we have a we have an Indigenous trade agreement, the Indigenous Peoples Economic Trade Agreement. We have provisions inside our trade agreements to promote Maori economic uh, cooperation with other um, other well with other states. In fact, mm. so it really depends on what sort of type trade agreement you're talking about. I mean, I think two problems, though, from this vision, as I understand it, are from the Māori Party. But I think if the Māori Party wants to have more Māori involved in trade, that's a very good thing. But a, a couple of problems. One is that um, trade agreements, or the, as we understand them, like, you know, TPP, for example, deal with government-to-government -government matters, rules, regulations, legislation. So if Māori wanted to sort of get up a trade agreement with another state, then they would have to be prepared to outline what they were bringing to the table, what rules, regulations they might wish to change or be able to change, and the other states would have to be interested in that. But I don't think that that, that rules out that you can have Indigenous to Indigenous trade agreements or that our whole practice in this area might evolve. Trade agreements are, after all, very flexible, um, but it's a lot more complicated than it actually mm. Looks. That's fascinating, Stephen. Thank you. That um, is plenty to, 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 for us to think about. And Paul Moon from AUT, thank you very much for your time, Professor Moon. Yeah, kia ora. Thank you. No, thank you all. Um, there'll be more, obviously, about the events at Waitangi on Checkpoint after five o'clock. Um, but let's move on because there are a bunch of issues came up at Waitangi today and they included climate change and the cost of living. And economists are warning that those two things will increasingly go hand in hand. You might call it disaster inflation. Last week, Reserve Bank Chief Economist Paul Conway made the case that climate change is in part to blame for the inflation we're seeing today, with fruit and vegetables getting more expensive, insurance prices on the rise and so on. So we're joined by ASB's senior economist Kim Mundy. Kia ora, Kim. Kia ora, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, what do you make of the Reserve Bank's comments last week that you know we are seeing climate change and cost of living coming together as a, to coin a phrase of the day, two-headed tanifa? I would have to agree. I mean, we are seeing signs that the climate-related disasters that we had earlier last year are flowing through into inflation, as you say. Things like insurance premiums are up 12% over the year. Food prices have risen where you know crops have been damaged. Construction costs can lift when houses have been um, damaged. Even you know housing costs more broadly if, if houses are no longer habitable. So you know we are definitely seeing this uh, climate change impact flowing through into inflation figures. So assuming that we know that the uh, temperatures are going to go up in the next few decades as we try to wrestle with this, we assume that inflation will sit at a, inflation norm, inflation's norm will be at a higher level now? Well, I mean, it depends if there are any offsetting factors to the other um, other angles. So if you think there there are only certain areas that we've seen that it's not sort of a, a broad based thing. But mm -hmm. in saying that, that could actually change over time as well because while we've seen the climate related sort of disasters impacting inflation, what we should also see over time is the impact of the emission trading scheme if that carbon price continues to lift, also filter through into higher prices. That one's a lot harder to track mm. because the EPS is applied very high up the supply chain. So once that filters through to consumer prices, it's, it's sort of harder to pinpoint. But if those prices do continue to creep up, then yes, it does suggest that that could also have an impact on inflation over time. Anna, does, that, does this ring true for you? Well, it's it's. I mean, I'm excited about it to be honest, because it finally feels like higher inflation. Um, 
<laughs> no, no, <laughs> more understanding about the effects of climate change. And if people are going to be affected in their back pocket, then possibly um, people will start to take it far more seriously. I, st- I had a conversation just over the weekend with, a, with a, a denier that this was all made up. And I mean, this was someone who'd spent his career working in the oil and gas industry. So I, I, I guess that he had a vested interest in not believing any of this. But um, I'm a I'm an avid listener of Nate Hagen's um, fantastic podcast, The Great Simplification. And, you know, it's a very interesting year ahead climate wise, um, looking at some really outrageous uh, temperatures for the northern summer. And um, I think I think, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really understand how inflation works too much, but I'm any conversation that's happening um, that increases our awareness of what's coming is fantastic. Well, Stephen, it's not just coming down in your part of the world, is it? The Hawke's Bay is very much it's very there. It's very much uh, apparent, and um, yeah. I think it is driving, uh, you know, consumer behaviour and, um, you know, inv- household investment decisions. Uh, you know, I mean, we're just about to get solar panels on our house, and um, uh, and, and actually one of, the, one of the things, not only are we interested in reducing our, um, well, doing what's right for climate, reducing our... Um, uh, carbon footprint, but we're also worried about you know the integrity of the electricity supply, uh, which, as you remember famously here in Hawke's Bay, cut out completely during the height of the um, um, the, right. uh, the cyclone. So I mean, I, I think it will en- encourage consumers to do things differently, and uh, there's a cost of doing all these things, of course, uh, which we have to think about how we're going to share that more equally across the ato- entire economy. Well, well, and this it is, is also, that. I mean, are we sitting? I, I just, I know, not trying to dismiss what you guys are saying, but we're kind of sitting around maybe shrugging our shoulders and sits saying it's a good thing where for a lot of people this is going to be seriously hard. That's right, because it's putting up the cost of um, the cost of food. Yeah, it's, it's putting up the cost of um, you know insurance. It's putting up the cost of electricity, uh, and we need to be the government in its management of the economy needs to be you know mindful of all those things in the way they manage. And this is the trouble with um, real life events; they tend to interrupt the best economic um, theories. But I, I wanted to ask though, Kim. I mean, do we have any idea about what, how much the climate change? equation has in, has impacted on this current rate of high inflation that we're going through? I mean, I know it's come down a little bit, but is there any estimations of that at all? Not specifically that I've seen, other than when you look at some of the details, you've definitely seen it uh, come through. And I think the main, I guess, example of that is the insurance premiums and just how much they've risen. And, you know, we've been hearing from insurance companies themselves. They simply have to put premiums up to um, get back some of the costs of what you know they've had to pay out given these these disasters. But I think that's one of the tricky things is it is opaque, um, and that's not likely to change anytime soon. But if you're a consumer and if you know that, for instance, anything that is you know over half of our emissions outside of agriculture are facing uh, ETS, then you can start thinking about that and you can start substituting your purchases away for more for lower emissions goods knowing that that's not going to have that Mm. extra sort of cost attached to it so there are ways that um people can mitigate it but again you know it can depend on on where you're you're sitting um Mm. in the sort of income distribution Mm. yeah quite right no that's interesting so so consumer choice is one other thing that you might we might be able to do anything we can do about this to to try and um avoid the worst of high inflation and high temperatures I think consumer choices are going to be really important. And again, I mean, businesses respond to consumers and changing preferences are a really 
big driver of business decisions. So it's actually the consumer is really powerful in terms of how it can how it can move money and change investment decisions. But even from a um, simple household level, you know, if you look at um, sort of what you can do around adapting, knowing that there will be more extreme weather events. Um, that can help play a role in sort of reducing the impact of those climate-related disasters on you. But keeping in mind that if everyone wants to do it at the same time, uh, then that's also costly through, you know, that that demand-driven um, price course. increase. So it's a complex um, matter, <laughs> but I think oh. it's really important that we talk about it and start thinking and start making changes now. And there was me thinking economics was easy. Um, Kim Mundy, thank <laughs> you very much for your time mm. on that ASB Senior Economist. Um, mm, I really thanks, appreciate Kim. it. Thank you. And look, um, talking about customers, um, customers and consumers and how we actually go about buying stuff, in the few minutes before the uh, headlines, I want to hear your stories of good service because this summer I had a real cracker. Um, and I want to, we'll go to the panel in a second, but my story is that doing the Hauraki Rail Trail with the family, biking along um, uh, this summer, I went into Arkwright's Antiques in Paidoa and found a plate, an antique plate that I wanted. And I was like, this looks gorgeous, but I can't cart that around on my bike. Um, so I went up to the counter and said, hey, look, is there any way you could post this safely? And the woman behind the counter goes, look, I come up to Auckland every few weeks. Why don't I just drop it off at your place? And I was genuinely stunned and was like, seriously, you, you just deliver this plate to me in my home? And they're like, yeah, sure. I could just pop off the motorway and, and drop it in. Um, so I was just staggered by that. So a huge hat tip to um, to the good people of Paidoa. Um And I thought, how often does this kind of stuff happen anymore, if it ever did at all? Stephen, do you have any great stories of, you know, someone well, going above and beyond know, you? Yeah, I mean, one, one that's very pertinent at the moment is I don't know if anybody's ever tried to get a spa bath repaired. I'm not talking about the one of those big ones that sit outside. They seem to be a bit easier, but one you have in your bathroom. We're just renovating a home uh, that has one of these. It was put in by people who owned it before. It doesn't didn't work. But finding someone who could do this, and we lucked upon, you know, Hot Springs Bars in Hawke's Bay, who just fantastic. Uh, fiddled around, found the problem, ordered the parts, came in, even during the weekend, and it fixed it. So, and it, it's... Even it, during it's the weekend? The, even during the weekend. That's nice. Anna? Well, I was thinking a lot of my customer service interactions actually are in the online space these days. So you don't tend to get that beautiful face-to-face. But um, I have a addiction to Earl Grey tea from a particular um, place. Kitty Kitty, Kitty Kitty Earl Grey, hands down, best Earl Grey in the country. And every time I order it online, the lovely man from there, Graham, I think his name is, sends me a personal note just to say that my... My goods are on their way. So it's not automated. I mean, the automated a personal note. Yeah, a personal note. And That's I was gorgeous. driving recently through Kirikiri and I actually wanted to stop and go and shake his hand and say thank you because it just makes all the difference to get that personal touch. And also to tell him he probably doesn't need to do that. But um, it makes me feel very warm towards him. That's nice. We've had a couple of nice texts. Kate says that she had great service from a recent weekend of biking out of Kudato. Um, guides were full of information. Food was delicious, um, healthy, uh, really relaxing, great weekend. Uh, company is Tongariro Rafting. So um, there's one for, for them. And um, someone else, big ups to, um, who was it here? Uh, Two Degrees Broadband. 
their account was cut off in error and they got a phone call from Two Degrees before they even realised they'd been cut off to say, how can we fix it? So um, they were pretty pleased about that. So keep those coming in. Text 2101 if you have any other great experiences. Um, That would be great to hear. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.